Hi, I'm Tom Thompson here at my own church. Pastor Emeritus Daryl Delisay asked me to make a video that included messages from the living stones of the Holy Land. Who are these living stones? They're the Palestinian Christians that live there. That Their voices are very rarely heard by even Christians here in the U.S. In Israel, there is less than 2% of the population that are Christians. The vast majority of these Christians are Arab Palestinians. Sadly, their numbers have been steadily declining over the previous decades. In 1991, my wife Linda and I started attending Scottsdale Bible, and we found Pastor Darrell's teaching very edifying, and we joined the church. Linda was very active in the women's ministry here. She taught Bible studies for 18 years until she went home to be with her Lord Jesus Christ in November 1st of 2016. In 2017, I was very fortunate to spend a month in the Holy Land based in Palestine with the Christian organization Holy Land Trust led by Sammy Awad, a native of Bethlehem. There we had many exciting things to do, including being able to worship at two evangelical churches right there in Bethlehem. One of the special programs that we had for us was at Alberica Church. Pastor Danny talked to us about the concept of dead and living stones. It seems that dead stones are those holy sites like the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem that's built on what is believed to be where Jesus was born. As most of the Holy Land tours in Israel originate in Israel, very little time is spent in Palestine. So for example, a tour going to the Church of the Nativity in, in Bethlehem would go to the checkpoint border. Uh, there's a separation wall between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It would go through the wall. On the other side, a Palestinian tour guide would take over and lead the tour for several hours and then return the tourists back to the border. Now let's hear from two of the living stones. The first is Reverend Dr. Alex Awad. He's a native of Jerusalem and was the pastor of the East Jerusalem Baptist Church and dean at Bethlehem Bible College that was founded by his brother. Reverend Awad's message is entitled Palestinian Memories. It's a fascinating glimpse into his growing up in Jerusalem and the issues faced by Christians there. At the end of his talk, he, he discusses some of the theological aspects of the issues in, in the Holy Land. And these points should be considered by all followers of Jesus. The second living stone is Sammy Awad of the Holy Land Trust. His message on peacemaking is extremely powerful. It was given here at a church in Scottsdale, Arizona. We ask that you pray for peace and justice 
in the Holy Land. Thank you. Greeting friends, the DVD that you are about to watch uh, at this time is really a combination of two stories. It is the story of my mother, a Palestinian woman uh, that lived in the Holy Land from uh, uh, 1916 to 2006 and also it's the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict from uh, way back in the beginning until today. The story follows the same order that I have in my book Palestinian Memories, the story of a Palestinian mother and her people. Thank you for purchasing the DVD and I hope it will be very beneficial for you. Most people in the United States and most people in Canada and in the West have something, a lopsided perspective on the Arab-Israeli conflict. And our desire here is to, to just build a balance. So we tell our story not because it's the only story that is true, but it's because we feel it's a story that needs to be heard. So the, the first part of my lecture will be to give you vocabulary and this vocabulary will help you understand more about the Arab-Israeli conflict. The second part of the lecture, I will share to you the story of my family, my, my mother especially, and through her story, go through the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. The question, of course, comes to us, why do we call these Arab countries? Why do we call it the Arab world? Next. Here it is, what is an Arab? Say a person comes from Mars, he corners you and he says to you, or she says to you, or it says to you, you know, what is the Arab world? What would your answer be? Next. Here it is, an Arab is a person who speaks the Arabic language and identifies herself or himself with the Arab culture. So, if you speak the Arabic language, and if you identify yourself with the Arab culture, then you are an Arab. Now the definition is important, but also what's important is what we did not say. We did not say Arabs are people who come from Arabia, because most Arabs today don't live in Arabia, they don't come from Arabia. We didn't say Arabs are Muslims, because some Arabs are not Muslims. We didn't say uh, Arabs uh, are children of Ishmael, because today most Arabs have nothing to do with the blood of Ishmael. So the definition is important, but also what we did not say about the definition is important. What's a Palestinian Arab, now that we know what's an Arab? Okay, I'll make it easy for you. The Arabs of Syria, we call them Syrian Arabs. <laughs> the, the Arabs of Egypt are called Egyptian Arabs. So the Arabs of Palestine are? There you are, very small group, that's it. But this country was called Palestine. And the natives of the country are called the Palestinian Arabs, whether they are Muslims or Christians. Okay, now you know what's an Arab, you know what's a Palestinian Arab. Now a Palestinian Arab Christian, as a matter of fact, I'm defining myself because I'm an Arab, because I speak the Arabic language. I'm a Palestinian, my family was born here, and I'm the same Christian. So an Arab Christian is? Go ahead. An Arab who was born in the Christian tradition or one who believes in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So if a person speaks Arabic language, traditionally, 
he or she comes from a Christian background, and also if they have accepted Christ in their life, we call them Arab Christians. In the world today, there are about 30 million Arab Christians. Only about half of them live in the Middle East and North Africa. The rest of them are scattered around the world. As a matter of fact, there are twice as many Arab Christians in the world than there are Jewish people. Arab Muslims. What would be an Arab Muslim? Here is the definition. An Arab Muslim is an Arab who believes in Allah God, in Muhammad as God's final prophet, and in the Quran holy book as God's final revelation. Now notice here a few things. First of all, the word Allah. This is exactly the Arabic word for God. Allah is not a strange God. When we Christians say, for God so loved the world, guess what word we use for God? Allah, Allah yes, Allah. So don't, don't think that the word Allah is a strange deity. Now, uh, that's Muslims. What are Jews? A Jew is? You, if you have an answer, you can tell me. You see, it's a little difficult. <laughs> here is the answer, or maybe you are a little bashful, but here's the answer. A Jew is a person born of a Jewish mother, or a person who converts to the Jewish faith. But the emphasis is on the word mother. If the mother is a Jew, the children are Jewish. If the father is a Jew, the mother is not a Jew, the children are not necessarily Jews. They had to go through conversion to become Jews. But with the mother, they don't have to go through conversion. They are automatically Jewish. What's an Israeli? That's easy. An Israeli is a citizen of the state of Israel. Most Israelis are Jews. But Israeli Arabs, they are citizens of the state of Israel. Uh, they are non-Jewish, non but they are still Israelis. And about 20-25% of the Israeli population is Israeli Arabs. All right, uh, we said an Israeli uh, is a citizen of the state of Israel. Uh, next, please. Zionism. What is uh, Zionism? Um, and here's the answer. Okay, the nationalistic philosophy that developed among Jews in Europe in the mid to late 19th century that aspires to create a homeland for the Jewish people. Jews ha have been persecuted in Europe. They needed a homeland. And so they created this movement called Zionism in order to create a home for the Jews somewhere in the world. Next. A Messianic Jew, maybe some of you know that. Exactly, a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Next. Here, a Jew who accepts Yeshua, Jesus, as his, her Messiah, and continues to observe Jewish customs and traditions. Jews who believe today, we have between six to 10,000 Jews who believe in Jesus in the state of Israel, and of course, many more around the world. Next. Christian Zionists, or Christian Zionism. And here's the definition. Christians who endorse the Zionist agenda based on their understanding of biblical prophecy. Uh, Christians, especially in England, 
and more in the United States who looked into the Bible and uh, they felt from the Bible that this country belongs to Israel and that they have an obligation from God to support uh, Israeli project uh, in this country. So we call them Christian Zionists. More of them today are in the United States than in England. Hamas. All right, you know what Hamas is. You've been hearing about it a lot in the media lately. But Hamas is uh, an Islamic, uh, next, here, one of the largest and most active Islamic resistant movements in Palestine. Today, Hamas controls the Gaza Strip, and it is in competition with the Fatah Party. The Fatah Party controls the West Bank, and the head of the Fatah Party, which is the PLO Party, is Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president. But both Mahmoud Abbas and the Hamas people, they don't recognize each other, so there is contention right now in the Palestinian society because of that. And you know what ha happened to Hamas in Gaza in the last few weeks. Next, intifada. That's an Arabic word, means to shake off. Next. An Arabic word that literally means to shake off, used to express the Palestinian revolt or rebellion against Israeli occupation. So, the Palestinians are sick and tired of the occupation. They want to get rid of the occupation. Every time they revolt as a massive, you know, public or uh, popular revolt, it is called intifada. They want to shake off the Israeli occupation of their country. Jihad. What does come in your image when you say jihad? A holy war, yes. And that is part of the meaning of jihad. And here's the full meaning. An Arabic word that means literally to struggle. Jihad is sometimes interpreted as holy war, but in fact, it means any struggle against evil in society or within an individual. This means when Muslims are fighting any evil in the society, it's called jihad. Like if they are fighting alcoholism, or if they are uh, fighting drug addiction, or child abuse, they still call it jihad, and that is the higher jihad. When they go to war, that is called the lower jihad. So jihad is any struggle against evil in the society, not just holy war. The West Bank. All right, you are now in the West Bank, but um, here is the definition of the West Bank. The territory west of the Jordan River, defended by Jordan in 1948 war and conquered by the Israelis in the 1967 war. The West Bank is home to approximately 3 million Palestinians. The West Bank is a small territory. Here, now I'll show you the map of the West Bank. Okay, the big chunk in the red is what we call the uh, West Bank. The other small piece of strip of land, also in the red, is called the Gaza Strip. Everything in the yellow is called Israel. Uh, okay, well, what I w wish to do now is um, give you the story of my family, especially focusing on the story of my mother. Um, three years ago, uh, my mother uh, passed away. She was living in Overland Park, Kansas, in the United States. And at her funeral, all of us, seven uh, brothers and sisters, we were there, you know, at the funeral. 
And, you know, as usual in funerals, you start talking about that person, what they've done in their life. And so my brother will say a story, my sister will say another story. So one of us suggested, why don't we gather all of these stories and put them in a book? And then they looked at me, and I was the one who ended up writing the book. So the book is called Palestinian Memories, the story of a Palestinian mother and her people. I tried in the story to uh, mix the Palest our family story with also the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, my mother was born in 1916, and she died in 2006. So she lived 90 years through all the ups and downs of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so her life is really a microcosm of the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, and that's why I chose to tell about her life while I'm at the same time telling about the story of the Palestinian people. So, her name is Huda, Huda Awad. As I said, she was born in 1916. In 1916, the Ottoman Turks were occupying Palestine. The Ottoman Turks occupied Palestine for 400 years. Next. Here are my, um, what you would call my uh, old folks, all right? <laughs> this picture probably was taken about 140 years ago. But that's uh, my grandmother standing up there, Nazira, with also her, uh, members of her family, and uh, sitting down is her husband. Uh, the reason I show this is to give you an idea that we as Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Arab Christians, we've been in this country much longer than um, the state of Israel. And we have roots that go back for many, many generations in this land. Perhaps some of us have roots even from the day of Pentecost until today. So, you know, sometimes when I go to Europe or the United States and I say, I am a Christian and I'm from, you know, an Arab Christian, people ask me, Are, were you a Muslim? And I say, no, Christianity was in this country since the day of Pentecost, and we have been Christians for many, many generations. And, and so you can see members of my family, Christian, Greek Orthodox family, for many, many generations. Next. Here again, members of my family, Nazira, my grandmother, sitting down on the left. Next. They belong to the Greek Orthodox Church, this is the Church of the Nativity here in Bethlehem. Most of you probably have visited or will be visiting there in the next few days. Next. All right, that's the same lady, Nazira, my grandmother. But this is how I remember her because, you know, I, I don't remember the old pictures. But Nazira was a very, very smart uh, woman. But she, since she was born during the Ottoman Turkish period, she never went to school. At that time, only few, few uh, men went to school, but most women were denied education. But she was a very smart woman. She wanted to learn. She wanted to study. And so when she had her children, she made sure, you know, my mother and my uncles went to school. But when they came back from school, Nazira would say, come on, Huda, come on, George, show me your lessons. And she'll act like she's the teacher. But actually, she was the student. Day after day, the, her kids will recite their lessons, and day after day, she learned more from them how to read. 
And she learned it. There are only two books she wanted to read. Guess what? The Bible. And what's next to the Bible in our church pews? The hymnal, you know? And because she was so proud of herself that she could learn at an older age, she always read the Bible in a loud voice. That was good, you know. I mean, in our house, that was a testimony. Everybody came to our house, they would, you know, hear maybe a section from the book of John in a loud voice. The problem is, Nazira also wanted to sing in a loud voice. <laughs> and when she sang, you just did not want to be there. Especially if my uncle George joined there, it was just horrible. Yeah. But they loved to praise God in a loud voice. Okay, this is a sample of Nazira's uh, needlework. Very, very smart woman. Next. This is my mother, Huda, when she was about one year old. Next. When Huda became really one year old, uh, the British General Allenby came and occupied Jerusalem and uh, all of Israel and liberated the Holy Land from the Turkish or the Ottoman occupation. The British stayed in Palestine from 1917 to 1948. Next. Here is Allenby, the British general, declaring that now Jerusalem and all of the Holy Land is part of the uh, British mandate. Next. Here is Palestine during the British mandate. All of this area in the red was called Palestine. And uh, it, it continued to be called Palestine until 1948, when this country became known as the State of Israel. But the majority of the people who lived in Palestine during the British mandate were Palestinian Arabs, Muslims, and Christians. Most of the Jews were still in Europe, and they have not yet come into Palestine. Next. Okay, going back to my family story, this used to be our neighborhood in Jerusalem. Where is this in Jerusalem? This was taken from the wall on top of Damascus Gate, looking towards the west. That neighborhood is called Musrara, and that's where my family lived in Musrara. But this picture also is very old. It's about 140 years old. Next. A more modern picture of the same area is this. All right, so this, and, and where you see that red line there, this is Musrara, where my family lived until 1948. Next. But soon, we were forced out of 1948. And how did it happen? What is the story that most Palestinians became refugees? Well, the story goes back to uh, the birth of Zionism. A Jewish man living in Austria, his name is Herzl. Uh, Herzl, he decided, uh, you know, the Jews are suffering in Europe and they need a state. And uh, so he started advocating for the creation of a Jewish state. He wrote a book called Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. And he started, you know, uh, seeking to create a Jewish state somewhere in the world. Herzl was not a religious Jew. He didn't care whether it will be in Palestine or not. But then later, other people joined to him to try to convince him it has to be in Palestine. Next. Herzl, you know, realized that there are people living in Palestine. But for him, these people have to move out so that Palestine will become a Jewish state. 
This is what Herzl had to say. He said both the expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. By spiriting, this means moving out, the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries while denying it any employment in our own country. So, what did Herzl want to do with the Palestinians who lived uh, in Palestine? Ethnic cleansing, yes, just moving them out. At that time, at that time, um, you know, there were not much uh, TVs at that time, no TVs and no CNN or BBC, uh, you know, TV. So the, the Zionists came up with this propaganda. Uh, Palestine, a, a land without a people, for the Jews, a people without land. Which part of this propaganda was not correct? A land without a people, because 700,000 Palestinians lived in Palestine during that period of time. Next. Well, Herzl could not do it alone, so he sought the help of what we call today Christian Zionists. This uh, Reverend William Heckler, a Christian Zionist, he wrote the book, The Restoration of the Jews to Palestine According to the Prophets. He was convinced that Herzl was sent by God to fulfill prophecy. The only problem, Herzl himself did not think so because Herzl was not a believing Jew. Next. All right. Well, how did, um, you know, what happened to give the Jewish people legitimacy into the land of Palestine? The Jews went to the British in 1917, the very year the British controlled Palestine. And they asked the British to come up with this declaration, which we call the Belfour Declaration. Belfour was a subject of the British king. And Belfour came up with this. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of the object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and the political status enjoyed by Jews in other countries. The Jewish folks, they took this Belfort Declaration as their Magna Carta, as their ticket to come to Palestine and start settling uh, Palestine. Next. Belfort also uh, was somehow a, a religious, what we call Christian Zionist. And he came up with this statement. He said, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs, in future hopes, of far profounder import than the desires or prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. You know what that means? It means that the 700,000 Arabs who live in Palestine, they are not that important. What is important is the profound ideas of Christian Zionism that we have in our minds and our hearts. These ideas are more important than the future of the Palestinian Arab population. You agree with him? <laughs> I hope not. Next. All right. Encouraged by the Belfort Declaration, 
the Zionists drew this map and submitted to the British government and said to the British government, this is what we want. We want Palestine to be all over this. I mean, not Palestine, the state of Israel. We want the state of Israel to be all in the red. This includes all um, mandate Palestine, plus part of Transjordan, plus part of Syria and Lebanon. The British said, sorry, sorry, we cannot give you this because most of the population is Arabs, whether Palestinian Arabs, Jordanian Arabs, Syrian Arabs, or Lebanese Arabs. Next. Yet, again, encouraged by the Belfort Declaration, Jews from around the world start coming and creating Jewish settlements in Mandate Palestine. By 1936, the Palestinians had enough. They felt like their country is slipping away from them. And so they decided to revolt. This is called Intifada. The first Palestinian uprising happened in 1936. Consequently, the British in 1937 decided to partition Palestine to give a section, the one in the yellow on top, to the Jewish folks, the one in the red to the Arabs, and the green zone in the middle, which includes Bethlehem and Jerusalem, will continue to be under the British mandate. Well, both groups were not happy. The Jewish folks, they said, oh, there are still millions of Jews persecuted in Europe. We need to bring them, and we need the whole country, the yellow, the red, and also part of Transjordan. The Palestinians said, why would the British? This country does not belong to them. Why do they come to our land and make a line, you know, in our country and give it to these new immigrants coming from Europe? Well, the British government was frustrated, and in 1948, they decided to give the problem of Palestine to the United Nations. This is what the UN did in 1947. 1947, the United Nations drew this map, uh, and Palestine will be partitioned in this way. Everything in the yellow will become a, the proposed Jewish state. Everything in the red, and with the lines, will become the proposed Arab state. The United Nations carved Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and they decided they will be under the auspices of the United Nations. Well, the Arabs did not like the partition. They totally rejected it. They were the majority of the people. They continued to own about two-thirds of the country. They were very upset with the United Nations partition. You can see why. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, when Israel declared its independence in 1948, Arab countries had a war with Israel, and they not only lost what uh, the United Nations gave to Israel, but also lost the red areas through war. And so what was left for the Arabs is the areas in lines, which is the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Next. These are important statistics, and we, we need to uh, you know, learn these statistics to understand why Palestinians and Arabs are very, very upset. In 1947, Palestinians owned approximately 87.5% of Palestine, while Jews owned 6.6% of the total land ma mass. The remaining 5.9% was state land as classified under the British mandate. So you can see Palestinians owned most 
of the land in 1947. The United Nations came and gave them less than half of their territory. And of course, it's natural for the Arabs to reject it. Next. All right, Ben-Gurion have this to say about the UN partition. Ben-Gurion became the first prime minister of the state of Israel. He said, after we become a strong force as the result of the creation of the state, we shall abolish partition, this is the UN partition, and expand to the whole of Palestine. So what did Ben-Gurion really want? I, I can't hear you. He wanted the whole thing, yes. And how did he want to do it? This is even more dangerous. Listen what, to what Ben-Gurion said. He said, we must use terror, assassination, intimidation, land confiscation, and the cutting of all social services to rid the Galilee of its Arab population. So it's not only that they had a goal on their mind, but also they have you know, devised the means to fulfill that goal. Next. All right. By 1949, this became the map of Israel and Palestine. Everything now in the yellow became the Jewish state, the state of Israel. What was left for the Arabs is the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The West Bank was taken over by Jordan. The Gaza Strip was taken over by, Israel, uh, by Egypt. What was left for the Palestinians? Nothing, Nothing at all. Next. All right, Ben-Gurion was a smart man. Early on, as early as 1919, when my mother was only three years old, he recognized this. He said, there is no solution to this question, no solution, there is a gulf, and nothing can bridge it. We, as a nation, talking about the Jewish people, want this country to be ours. The Arabs, as a nation, want this country to be theirs. Ben-Gurion realized that if the Jews will come to the Holy Land, there will be a problem, and that problem will have no solution. And now we are living that problem. Next. So, I call this a conflict of aspiration. Uh, Jewish aspirations, Arab aspirations, Muslim aspirations, Christian aspirations, all are gathering in this small strip of land. Next. Back to my family story. This church is in Yaffa. Yaffa is on the Mediterranean seashore. I show this church because my great-grandfather, Alexander Awad, made contribution to build this church. I'm trying to show the Christian connection with my family for so many years. If you go inside this church, you see this. It says in English, uh, in the memory of the late Cavier Alexander Bay Howard, beneficiary to this church. Of course, they translated Awad, that's my last name, to Howard. They, they made us British. <laughs> but actually, if you read the Arabic, it says uh, Awad, our Arabic uh, name. But uh, what I want to try to show you is that uh, we Palestinian Christians have long roots in this country that go for many, many generations. As a matter of fact, you can go and visit that church today and see that writing on the wall. Next. Okay, back to my mother's story. Here is my mother when she was maybe in her late teens, and she was studying to be a nurse at the British Scottish Hospital in Nazareth. 
She found this handsome young man, and they got married and have seven children, and I'm one of them. Next. Here's my father, Elias, with my uh, oldest brother. Uh, his name is Nicola. Now he lives in Overland Park, Kansas, and he's 70 years old. Next. Well, our life in Jerusalem was normal life until we had what we call in Arabic the Nakba. The Nakba is an Arabic word that means catastrophe. And uh, in, in 1948, uh, we were living in uh, West Jerusalem. I showed you our neighborhood. And it became a crossfire between the Israelis and uh, the Jordanian uh, army. My father, who was civilian, was shot and killed, leaving my mother with seven children. The youngest was six months old, and the oldest was um, 11 years old, my brother Nicola. Few days after my father was shot, we were all forced out of our homes, and we became refugees. We have to leave West Jerusalem, where our home was, and we went to East Jerusalem. Next. Okay, not only us, but about 800,000 Palestinians became refugees. How did these people leave their homes? Why did, what made them leave their homes and go out and become refugees? There are many stories, but here is a witness of an Israeli uh, soldier who participated in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. He said, as uncontrolled panic spread through all Arab quarters, the Israelis brought up jeeps with loudspeakers which recorded, broadcast recorded horror sounds. This included shrieks, wails, and anguish, moans of Arab women, the wail of sirens, and the clang of fire alarm bells, interrupted by sepulchre voice calling out in Arabic, save your souls, all ye faithful. The Jews are using poison, gas, and atomic weapons. Run for your lives in the name of Allah. Well, with this, of course, most Arabs, they got scared and that with fear and panic, and also there were massacres happening in some of the villages like Deir Yassin, and that caused many of the Arabs to leave their homes and, and run away for safety. When they tried to come back to their homes, they were not able to. Many of their homes were destroyed anyway. Next. So, where did they go? They went to refugee camps set up by the Red Cross. The Red Cross gave them tents and they went and lived in these tents for uh, 10 years. Can you imagine? Leaving your house and living in a tent for 10 years until the United Nations came after 10 years and gave them cement and concrete and steel to try to build some small cottages for them. Next. It was miserable to live in a refugee camp, but this is what happened to, to 800,000 Palestinians after 1948. Next. This is the Dehesha refugee camp, which is about three kilometers from here. And this picture was taken in 1959 when the United Nations came to try to help the Palestinians and gave them some uh, concrete to replace the tents. Next. All of these dots are Palestinian towns and villages that were either destroyed or depopulated by the Israelis in 1948. Of course, destroyed means totally demolished. To depopulate a town, you're surrounded by three sides. 
and you leave one side open and you give the people an ultimatum. You have 15 minutes, you get out. If you don't, we will destroy the town anyway. And so the bulk of the Palestinian population that were living in these over 400 villages and towns ran away and left their homes. The Israelis then fortified their new borders where any is a Palestinian man, woman, or child that tried to cross back to his or her home was shot and killed. And so the bulk of the Palestinian refugees stayed in refugee camps, many of them unfortunately until today. Well, the United Nations came with a beautiful resolution to try to help these Palestinian refugees. It's called Resolution 194. It says refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date. And those wishing not to return should be compensated for their property. So what were the Palestinians offered? Either compensation or repatriation. But what did actually happen? Nothing, neither, neither. This resolution was never implemented, and that's because of U.S. pressure with, and using its veto against implementing these resolutions. Next. All right, back to my family story. My mother, in 1948, like I told you, she lost her husband, and she lost her home, she lost everything. We became refugees. We moved to East Jerusalem. We tried to find a new home. What did she do? She refused to go to a refugee camp. Instead, she decided to go to college. She went to Augusta Victoria School of Nursing in Jerusalem, and she became what we call a registered nurse, and she graduated as a registered nurse. She was a dedicated Christian woman, and instead of looking back at the tragedy, she decided to look forward. She always taught us, uh, you know, uh, never harbor any anger in your heart, always forgive. Never look back, always look forward. Never say, why God? Always say, how God? And with this attitude and with her deep Christian faith, she really helped us, her children. All right, here are uh, the eight of us, seven children and my mother. And if you look from clockwise, I'm going from the top line, uh, clockwise, that's my brother Mubarak on the extreme uh, left, and then Bishara, the director of the Bible College, you probably met him, and then Elizabeth, then Ellen, then Diana. Diana, my sister, was six months old when my father was shot and killed. Then my mother, then Nicola, you saw his picture as a baby, and finally, that's me. Sorry, I cannot move. <laughs> All right. But, you know, when we look at this picture, we just thank God. God has been merciful to us. The rest of the story is in my book, where God has really showed a lot of goodness and mercy to us through the years, especially with the help and the encouragement of a Christian mother. Next. Here are two of my brothers, Mubarak and uh, Bishara, as, uh, you know, students in one school. Next. Well, my mother could not have seven children at home with her, so she put us in boarding schools. And so this is St. George's School in Jerusalem. It's a British school. And all of us four brothers would go and study during the day at St. George's School. But at night, we would go to our boarding orphanage, and we would live in the orphanage. And also my sisters went to other school because my mother had to work day and night to keep the family together. Next. 
But here again, by God's grace, we all grew up and we all, you know, uh, prospered in life. Some of us decided to go full-time ministry and serve God. Next. Here is my mother before she died, and uh, she always had a smile on her face. And if you ask Huda, why are you smiling? She will always put her hand up, and she would say, because of the goodness and the grace of God. She never remembered the negative. She always thought of the positive. Now we go back to the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict. What happened to the rest of the Palestinians? In 1967, we have another war called the Six-Day War. In the Six-Day War, Egypt lost the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. Israel uh, took the West Bank from Jordan and the Golan Heights from Syria. So a big problem became a bigger and the number of refugees even increased. Here is the West Bank. The West Bank is the big problem today. Israel wants the West Bank to be part of greater Israel, while the Palestinians want the West Bank to be heart of their future state. In the West Bank lives around 3 million Palestinians and about 400,000 Israeli settlers. And so the conflict today is really focusing on the West Bank. Okay. Now, talking about the West Bank, all of these uh, colors within the West Bank, they are not lakes. We don't have too many lakes in the West Bank. These are Israeli settlements that were built since 1967. In my opinion, these settlements are the greatest obstacle to peace because these settlements diminish the Palestinian aspiration of having a Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. All right, Israeli leaders encouraged uh, their populations to grab the West Bank. Here is what Sharon had to say to his people. He said, everybody has to move, run, and grab as many hilltops as they can to enlarge the settlements. Of course, these are the settlements in the West Bank. And then he said, because everything we take now will stay ours, the Jewish people. Everything we don't grab will go to them. Of course, they're Palestinians. That's Ariel Sharon. Next. All right, so the Palestinians uh, did not stay idle, and they revolted, and their revolt is what we call Intifada. The first Intifada, 1987 to 1993, was mainly nonviolent. Palestinian men, women, and children went into the streets to say to the Israelis, enough is enough. We don't want you to take over our land. The Israelis responded with plastic bullets, with tear gas, and with live ammunition and many Palestinians were killed in that uh, uprising. But from the Palestinian perspective, it was not a violent uprising. While the second Intifada was very violent. Next. <coughs> uh, the conclusion, the first Intifada conclusion concluded with the peace process. We call it the Oslo Accords. And they were signed in the White House in 1993, where, with uh, uh, Yasser Arafat, Bill Clinton, and uh, the Israeli Prime uh, Minister Rabin. That was optimistic time, and everybody thought this is the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the start of a peace process. But unfortunately, it did not work out. Next. Why it didn't work out? Because as Israelis were living up to the Oslo agreements and pulling some of their troops out of the Jericho area and out of parts of the Gaza Strip, they would go to other areas in the West Bank and confiscate big 
chunks of the West Bank and create new Jewish settlements. And when the Palestinians realized that, they, they said, no, no, you cannot make peace with one hand and steal the land with the other hand. The truth about it, the Israelis never stopped their settlement politics, uh, policy, even before 1993 and even until today. And that's what keeps aggravating the Palestinians. Even today, you hear on the news about house demolishing and confiscation of land, it's still going on. Next. Oslo too would give the Palestinians 40% of the West Bank. But when they looked at this map, Palestinians were not happy. Guess why? It's not, uh, you know, contiguous. You know, the, every Palestinian enclave is surrounded by Jewish settlements and by Jewish bypass roads. And so the Palestinians felt choked in their enclaves. Next. Well, when Ariel Sharon took about 100 police and soldiers into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, in the year 2000 and declared all Jerusalem should be the united capital of the Jewish state forever and ever, many Palestinians did not like what he was saying and they threw stones at him. His soldiers started shooting back at Palestinians, killing many Palestinians. That initiated what we call the second uprising from the year 2000 to the year 2004. Now, that uprising was very, very bloody. Israeli jets will go over Palestinian refugee camps and towns and drop bombs and kill many Palestinians, men, women, and children. Palestinian suicide bombers will also have a, a strip themselves with a, a belt that's full of bombs. They'll go into an Israeli bus or a cafe or a street and explode themselves and kill as many people as possible, including themselves. So that was a very, very bloody uh, uprising from both sides, and nobody was really uh, guilt-free in, in that uprising. Next. Well, the Israelis decided if these Palestinian suicide bombers come to our territory and explode themselves and kill us, we have to do something about it. So they built what we call the wall. As you came into Bethlehem, you saw the big wall. The blue line that you see is the line of the wall. Next. Well, Palestinians are not happy about the wall because most of the wall is built on Palestinian land. If you notice in this map, the green line is actually the line uh, uh, of the border between the West Bank and Israel. But the black line is the line of the wall. And notice how the black line moves right into the West Bank, confiscating much of the Palestinian territories and making it part of greater Israel. That aggravated the Palestinians and also aggravated the international community. And in The Hague, the international court said this wall is illegal and Israel must compensate the Palestinians for it. But with the support of the United States, Israel is not doing any amendments to the Palestinians. Next. Here is the wall. As you leave Bethlehem, you see it, eight meters high, and it goes for miles and miles and miles and miles. It's maybe many, many times longer than the Berlin Wall and, of course, much higher. Next. Here is the wall as you see it in Bethany, the town of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. But notice how it divides the Palestinian town in half. On both sides of the wall, Palestinians live. This means Palestinians are separated from their families, from their works, from their school, from their hospitals. And it makes the life of the Palestinians miserable. Palestinians are never asked 
when the Israelis decide where to build the wall. The Israelis decide, okay, we want it here, and it's built here. And if a Palestinian house happens to be in the way, it gets demolished. Next. A Palestinian artist, a friend of the Bible College, Zaki Baboon, drew this uh, oil painting depicting the Holy Family trying to get to Bethlehem, but they couldn't because of the wall. Next. Are Palestinians happy with the wall? This boy says it all, doesn't he? All right. What would they like to do with the wall? Next. <laughs> all right. All right. Most Palestinians are really aggravated because of the wall. Next. Sometimes, you know, you can have a checkpoint inside a mosque, a holy place. This is the cave of the Machvilla in Hebron, where Abraham and Sarah and the family of Abraham were buried. But Palestinians cannot cross from one side to the other side without an Israeli checkpoint inside that holy place. Next. Solidarity uh, groups come to stand with the Palestinians to protest the building of the wall. Next. Like I said, if a house happens to be in the way of the home, it just gets blown up and, uh, so that the Israelis can continue with their project. Next. Young people, of course, they continue to rebel and they continue to be humiliated. Sometimes normal life is this, uh, disturbed as a result of the Israeli measures. Next. This re picture really expresses Palestinian frustrations with the wall. I mean, you can name it, whether it is uh, educational, whether it is medical, whether it is religious, whether it is uh, psychological, whether it is economic. So we left, all of us left the country. Bishara and I were an exception to the rule that we came back. But all of my brothers and sisters are either in Europe or in the United States. And also my mother migrated in the 1970s to the United States. Yeah. So it's, it's part of our, what you call tragic history, that we had to leave the country. All right, so the, this, um, like I said, this picture expresses the Palestinian frustration with the, the, the wall and, and everything that this wall, the checkpoints, are causing to them. Next. Okay, what will be left for the Palestinians after the wall is finished? This is what will be left, the areas in the red, which is less than 15% of historic Palestine. Next. The question comes in mind, is there a solution to this question? Remember Ben-Gurion said, there is no solution. But suppose we are looking today for a solution. We can think of the one-state solution. We can think of a two-state solution, one for the Israelis and one for Palestinians. And we can think of the continuation of the current status quo, which is actually no solution. The third you know, uh, point is the worst for the Palestinians because as there is no solution, the Israelis continue to confiscate Palestinian lands, demolish Palestinian homes, and enlarge what we call greater Israel. So no solution is, a te is terrible for the Palestinian people. Now let's discuss a little bit the one-state solution and the two-state solution. Next. If you look at these three maps, when you think of the one-state solution, it will look like Mandate Palestine, or Palestine during the British Mandate. 
where this area in the red will be a state for all Jews, for all Palestinians, equal rights, equal voting, equal sharing of everything in the country. Total democracy, secular rather than a Jewish or a Muslim state. That sounds good, right? Sounds very good, but it's too ideal. The Israelis, they are very strong, they are powerful. 85% of the Israeli population today totally reject the one-state solution. All right? From a Palestinian perspective, the two-state solution would look like the uh, second map, the map in the middle, where the Palestinians would say, okay, we want two-state solution, a Palestinian state in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. Israel can have everything in the yellow, which is 87% of, uh, se sorry, 78% of Palestine. And the rest, which is about 22, will become the Palestinian state. As a matter of fact, the Palestinians have accepted the two-state solution. It's the basis of the Oslo agreements, and it's the basis of the quartet, or uh, the map, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The roadmap, the roadmap is uh, based on the two-state solution. Now, the problem is the third map. If the Israelis think the two-state solution is according to the third map where they'll give the Palestinians about 10 to 12% of their national homeland and say, this is going to be your state, this is a recipe for disaster because no Palestinian, no Arab country, no Muslim country will accept that uh, third map as the final solution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. So, although the, you know, the British are saying, yes, we believe in the two-state solution, I'm talking about the British government, although the Americans are saying we believe in the two-state solution, even some Israeli leaders are saying we believe in the two-state solution, but if they are looking at that last map, then they are looking at disaster because that will never be the two-state solution that the Palestinians are aspiring for. So we are hoping that the world will come to its senses and say to Israel, look, 78% of Palestine is good enough. Take the middle map, let the Palestinians have the West Bank and the Gaza Strip with few adjustments here and there. Otherwise, there would not be a solution to this. Okay, since you are such nice people, I will go to one more slide. Next. Okay. I have a whole lecture on this, but we don't have time for it. But I want to give you uh, this chart. The reason I show this chart because a lot of people in the churches in the United States and in Europe are confused about how to look into the Bible regarding this situation. And they confuse the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, and for that reason they support Israel blindly. Alright, this chart shows the two covenants. If you look horizontally, on the top line, you have the nation, the land, the city, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice. These are the elements of the covenant, whether it is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. These are the most important facts of the covenant. Now, look horizontally, also in the green line, the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. It has to do with Israel, with the Promised Land, with Jerusalem, with the Temple, with Levitical or Aaron, and with animal sacrifice. 
Now, if you look down to the third uh, covenant, which is the covenant in the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ, then you see all believers, the kingdom of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, hearts of the believers, Christ and the believers, Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Let me explain. Now you look vertically. Look vertically. The nation in the Old Covenant, no question, it was Israel. Whatever you read in the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel. But when you come to the New Covenant, who is the nation of God? Who are the people of God according to the New Covenant? All believers. All believers. Is that, is that true according to, the new, to your New Testament? Exactly. Look at the land. In the Old Covenant, it was the Promised Land, the Holy Land. But when Jesus and his disciples talked in the New Testament, they hardly said anything about the land. What did they talk about? The kingdom of God. And when they asked the kingdom, uh, Jesus, where is the kingdom of God? Where it is located? Jesus Christ said, the kingdom of God is within you. Within you. So it's not so much more geographic. It is now in the heart. Now look at the city. In the Old Covenant, the city was Jerusalem. No doubt about that. Now when you come to the New Covenant, it talks about a different Jerusalem, a spiritual Jerusalem, or sometimes we call it the New Jerusalem, which is made up really of the believers in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, or the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at the temple in the Old Covenant, it was in Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. Now, in the New Covenant, you know, the temple is the hearts of the believers, where Paul said, uh, you know, you are, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, when you look at the priesthood, in the Old Covenant, it was Levitical priesthood. Aaron and his uh, descendants were the priests. But when you come to the New Covenant, we know from the book of Hebrews that Christ became our eternal priest. Now, the sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, it was animal sacrifice, but in the New Covenant, the sacrifice became Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the remission of our sins. Now, what does this have to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict? Now, those people who continue to focus on the Old Covenant in the green, then certainly they want a piece of land, they want to rebuild the temple, they want to resume the Levitical priesthood, they want to have animal sacrifices, and so on and so forth. Because these are components of the Old Covenant. Now, when you come to the New Covenant, and I hope you are, and I am, and all of us are, in the New Covenant, the New Covenant is not about a piece of land. It's not about geography. It's about all people, the hearts of the believers, Christ dwelling in us. We become priests for God. It's about Jesus Christ dying on the cross to be the sacrifice for the atonement for all people, whether they are Jews and Gentiles. So if we focus on the New Covenant, we don't focus on the land. We don't fight to get a piece of land to establish a kingdom of God on that piece of land. Because what God wants is his kingdom in the hearts of people everywhere, regardless of where they are living. So, my advice for you, keep your mind on the new covenant, because it's a covenant of peace, justice, and righteousness. 
if you go back to the old covenant, then you certainly have to start an army and fight people for the possession of a piece of land. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We join me in welcoming Samuel Wad. Good morning, everyone. It is a true joy to be with you uh, today, to be back here again. Uh, I was sharing earlier that the first time I came to this church and spoke, it was a true blessing for me. The second time, it felt like coming back home, and this time it feels like I never left. So it's, it's a real joy to be able to come here. And, and for me, I take this opportunity and this invitation not to try to impress you with anything. Uh, I guess this is why you invite me again, because something happened the first two times. Uh, but to actually share my journey with you, to share my heart with you, and, and especially the big question for me, which is, what does it mean to be a peacemaker in the midst of conflict? As a Palestinian who has lived under what's known as military occupation, under violent situations, in a land where Palestinians and Israelis have been violent towards each other, many on both sides have suffered. Many have died in this conflict that's been going on for decades. What does it really mean for us to be peacemakers in times of conflict? In the conflicts that we face in our community here in the U.S., in our society, between us and our neighbors, between us and people who are different than us, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? And so I begin by asking the question in our mind, when I throw out the word peacemaker, what are some of the images that come to us? Many people would look at the concept of peacemakers. They might refer to groups like the United Nations. Peacemaking forces that go into countries to try to stop warring factions from fighting each other. Many of us would look at diplomats who engage in negotiating conflicts between people in conflict or warring factions. Many people would look into secretaries of state, foreign dignitaries as peacemakers. They win Nobel Peace Prizes for making peace happen between communities. And many of us like this because many of us would understand the concept of peacemaking as the situation where there is no war taking place. There is no violence. There are no people that are suffering or are dying because of warring factions. And we accept this. I, I studied peacemaking in college. I did a degree in conflict resolution in college. I studied the seven steps to peacemaking. But is this the peacemaking that Christ calls us to be when He calls us to be peacemakers? And so for today I would like to engage in sort of two questions. How do we become peacemakers 
And what does it mean to engage in peacemaking through the pure lens of Jesus Christ and what He calls us to do? Because at the end, Jesus does call us to be peacemakers. And is it sort of this earthly, standard, typical process of negotiating conflicts, of stopping warring factions from happening, or is this something, or is there something else to it? And a few months ago, I was on an airplane uh, reading the Bible and reading the Beatitudes. And one of the things I started realizing very quickly as I was just sort of reading them and reading through them over and over again, is that I, as a person at least, has completely misunderstood the Beatitudes themselves. They're simple. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the way I understood them, and what I realized is the way that most people look at the Beatitudes, is they look at them as each being its own individual statement. Like bullet points. The first one, the second one, the third one. I call them bumper stickers. Each one being its own unique bumper sticker. And I started reading them a little differently. I started reading them as a process of me personally to engage in. A journey that all the Beatitudes themselves are part of my journey that ultimately leads me to one of the last Beatitudes, which is being the peacemaker. And so what I would like to share with you today is sort of how I see this journey and how I've experienced it in my life. I'm not a theologian, I'm not a pastor, so many people would probably argue, you're wrong, Sammy. But at the end, I would just want to share it as part of my personal experience of beginning to truly understand what it means to be a peacemaker. Because for me, at the end of the day, what Christ calls us to do is to transform ourselves. It's not about learning something and using these tools in our work, but it's about who I become as a peacemaker. And so if we look into the Beatitudes themselves, the first one is blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the second one is, blessed are those who mourn. And if we just take the first phrases of the blessed, of just, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And if we just put these words next to each other, we could actually begin to see a linkage between them. What does it mean to, to be poor? Being poor means I acknowledge that I have lost everything. Being poor means I don't have food, I don't have money. And being poor in spirit means I don't even have the spiritual answers in my life. I surrender everything. I am poor. I, I beg. That's what many poor people do around the world. They beg for what they are missing. And so when I acknowledge that I am poor, I receive the first blessings of God. I don't have answers. As a Palestinian who lives in the midst of conflict, to be able to say, I don't have answers. My opinion means absolutely nothing to real peacemaking in this. I could say, I am right. You know, everything about the Palestinian narrative is right. The Israeli will come here and say everything about the Israeli narrative is right. But being poor means I surrender everything. I have no answer. I surrender everything to God. I beg God for giving me the answer. And not do I just acknowledge that I am poor. The next one is to mourn what I have lost. To mourn what I have given up. Because mourning means putting a closure to it. I'm not even going to try to seek that same thing that I had. I'm not going to even try to seek that same political answer differently. 
When I say I am poor and I give up my political aspirations to finding a solution to this conflict, I mourn that. That means I completely close that file of the past. So I start by declaring myself as poor, by mourning my understanding of how do I resolve this conflict in my community or with my neighbor. I don't have an answer. And then the next step, you, you begin to go from this sort of down place to meekness, humbleness. I humble myself before God. I open my heart before God and I say, God, you give me the answer. I don't have anything. I have absolutely no answer to this conflict, to this war. I am humble. I meek myself in front of you. And then the next step, I begin to hunger for righteousness. Now I'm growing up. Now I'm actually seeking something. Righteousness. Because this is what God gives me. His righteousness and grace is what begins to open my eyes to the world. And then as I begin to seek this righteousness, and the next thing is mercy. You can just see it's sort of this transition of my personal process of being in the slow spot. And then I'm slowly beginning to rise. Righteousness, mercy. And then the next one is pure in heart. Pure in heart, the way I look at it, is becoming a white, pure slate. All the past is gone. All the pain is gone. All of my judgment, all of my assumptions are gone. And I'm pure in the kingdom of His righteousness and His mercy. And then, when I reach that point of my personal process, then the next thing happens. I'm a peacemaker. I can actually now engage in a real understanding of what peacemaking is about. It's not about my cause. It's not about my issue. It's how do I stand in this place where I truly begin to see the humanity and the pain that exists in this world. As a Palestinian, to be able to see the pain of the Israeli who is persecuting me. As an Israeli, to begin to see the pain of the Palestinian who is attacking me. This is where true peacemaking is about. And I want to explain a little bit what does that look like in terms of the framework of how I think Jesus engaged in this. But the sad thing, or maybe the joyful thing about this process is that there's actually one after peacemaking. You know, what, what comes after being a peacemaker? Persecution. <laughs> it's actually not fun to be a peacemaker in that true sense of the world, the word. When you are a peacemaker in that true sense, you're not seeking a Nobel Peace Prize. You're not seeking an award. You're not seeking a grant for the job you've done. You're not seeking even press recognition for what you're engaging in. What you should be expecting is persecution. And when persecution comes, it actually comes from everybody. For me as a Palestinian to be able to stand in front of my Palestinian community and to say, true peacemaking is about loving our enemy. I'm not going to get many fans in my community that would agree with me because of the, lot of the pain that exists there. And for me as a Palestinian to go to the Israelis and to say, I love you. Really? They're going to doubt me. They're not going to trust me. What's the hidden agenda behind this? What are you trying to gain out of this? And so to be in this space where you as a peacemaker become persecuted by everybody, that means you have surrendered all of your ego, all of your desires, all of your earthly aspirations into one thing, into God's will for you and for your community. I surrender everything. I want to be a peacemaker. That means I have no agenda. I have no political aspirations. I have no what's mine and what's theirs. But there's one after persecution, which is 
rejoice. This is where true joy exists. The joy of really engaging in this process of being a peacemaker on this earth. Of not just resolving conflicts, but of actually bringing communities together. And so this has been a journey that I've been engaging in. And a journey that I'm challenging others to begin to seek in their own lives. It's not about learning a course. It's not about getting a degree. It's not about being your own righteous self and how you deal with your enemy. I'm better than them. They're the violent one. I'm the nonviolent one. They're the bad. I'm the good. But to look into the process of how Jesus really engaged in this personal transformation to become a peacemaker. And then to ask the question, well then what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do on a daily, his daily work as a peacemaker? And there's this verse which is actually before the Sermon on the Mount. But it's kind of spreads throughout the life of Jesus. Which is Matthew 4.23. Which says, Jesus walked through the Galilee. Which is what he did in the land. And he did three things. He was preaching in their synagogues. He was healing the illnesses and wounds. And he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Teaching, healing, and preaching the kingdom of God. And for me, this is the challenge that I want to leave us in. True peacemakers, in that sense of following in the footsteps of Jesus, are not the ones who just negotiate peace treaties between warring factions. They're not the ones who are trying to negotiate some bill in the Senate or the Congress that both parties can agree on or accept to live by. True peacemakers are the ones that look into a conflict and they ask, what is the wound that needs to be healed in this conflict? They're not looking at the actions of violence only, but they're looking at what causes people to commit acts of violence. And if we really look into conflicts, from the personal conflicts we have in our lives to the big national conflicts we have with other countries and communities, one of the things, if we really look in this, from this pure heart of the lens of Jesus, one of the things we begin to see is that in every conflict, there is a moment of pain that we have ignored and we need to address. And that moment of pain needs healing. It's very difficult for us to hear this. As a Palestinian, to be able to say, what is the pain that exists in the Jewish community that I need to heal? This is where true peacemaking begins. Because when Jesus was healing people, he wasn't healing them just to show off how great he is. Look, I'm the Messiah. Psh, I heal you. The healing process is a process to actually liberate people from the constraints that prevent them from living out their humanity in the way God wanted us to live our humanity. When I live in fear as a nation or as an individual today, it's because of the past pain that I experience. But when I'm healed from that past pain, I could live out my humanity. The Jewish community can live out their Jewishness. The Muslim community can live out their Islam in that way of really honoring what it means to be a human being without fear, without violence, without this need for security and protecting myself from the other. So Jesus healed the past. And then he was teaching in their synagogues. Teaching means engaging in building up the community. Doing the programs that train people so I'm healed from the past, but what do I do now? What are the programs that we as a church can really bring into the community? Not just the charity programs. Not just the here's a, here's a check. I did my part. 
How do I bring my skills, the gifts that God has given me to train and to teach people in my community, in my enemy's community, so that they could truly live their life and develop and prosper in the way God wants us to do. And then there's that third component, which for me is the ultimate engagement of peacemaking. Preaching the kingdom of God. Christ doesn't want us just to heal our past. He doesn't want us to live a good life in the present. All of this is ultimately for bringing the kingdom of God at hand. This is the ultimate job of our engagement as peacemakers. It's not the ultimate. I want to say this is the only job we have as peacemakers. The church engagement in peacemaking in areas of conflict is to usher in the kingdom of God in these areas. This is what we're called to do. And what does that mean? In the context of where I live, in the context of the Holy Land, in Palestine and Israel, honestly, I would say it's not about reaching a political agreement. Many people talk about what is the political solution to the conflict. I don't see Jesus sitting and doing this. I don't see Jesus sitting at a negotiating table between Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, and Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian President, and trying to reach a deal between them. Bringing the Kingdom of God means bringing those values of the Kingdom into our lives, and into the lives of our enemy. Respect, dignity, honor. We're all created, created by God in God's image. We're all equal in God's eyes. This is what we are called to do. And this is my prayer to you as the church today. How can we as the church become true peacemakers? What is the process that we need to engage in? And what is the mission that we do outside of this church? And may God bless you in your conflicts in your lives, in your conflicts in your nations, so that these would be the tests of true engagement in peacemaking. Thank you and God bless you.